Sunday morning studying the book of Genesis together. And we come now to uh, chapter 6 in a series entitled Gleanings from Genesis. So not the entire book, just uh, different places that we want to land. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to one of them and they'll put a Bible in your hand so you can uh, hear the Word of God but then see it with your own eyes, which is so important. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. We pick things up in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth was also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And make yourself an ark of gopher wood, Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark on its side, uh, in its side rather, and you shall... Uh, make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am, am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. Uh, Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourselves, and it shall be food for you and also for the animals. And thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the incredible diversity of your word, all of the different forms in which it is written, and And most of all, that it is written for a purpose. It is written to reveal you to us, Lord, and to instruct us in some important way in our lives. And we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit this morning as we turn to your word, and that you would give us the capacity to hear your voice through your word and to each one of our lives this morning. We acknowledge as even as we've sung here this morning that you love us, Lord, and you care about us, and we love to hear your voice. And so we pray that you would speak to us, those of us who know you, the things we would need to hear from you, and Lord, those men and women that stand before you right now that have not yet trusted in Jesus for salvation, that they would hear 
your voice as well and come to you this morning. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we studied last week, kind of a little bit of a recap to get our bearings here uh, as we turn to the passage we're looking at at this morning. Uh, But last week we looked at the marks of of the world and the characteristics of the world at the time of Noah. And in looking at those characteristics of the world, realizing that those are not only the characteristics of a world that is ripe for judgment in Noah's day, but when those characteristics become the characteristics of the world in any age, that it is a world that is ripe for God's judgment. We saw how it was a time of great evil and wickedness, not in pockets of the earth, but worldwide. It was a time of corruption when the decision-making and the actions of human beings on the earth were uh, hurtling the world uh, toward its own destruction, even if God had not uh, stepped in and judged it uh, prior to that. It was a time when the world was filled with violence, a time when man gave himself to evil uh, imaginations continually, and it was a time of an extraordinarily, extraordinary involvement of the demonic realm uh, in the affairs of men. In other words, when uh, you look at, looked at the world in those days, you would look at it and you would conclude that the world is no longer under the influence of God. Uh, that the world has reached a a level of rebellion against God, a level of the practice of evil, that it is uh, no longer under the influence of God, but now under the influence of the demonic realm. When uh, the, the level of evil, the level of wickedness, the level of corruption and violence Uh, the level of the exaltation of evil over uh, good becomes so great that you realize that uh, in in the world as you would look at it, you realize this is beyond even the capacity of evil uh, on on the basis of uh, the fallenness of man from the time of Adam and Eve. And you would look at the world and say there must be demonic activity now uh, behind men and women's thinking uh, and, and their doing. Now we can ask ourselves as we study a little bit about Noah and the time of the flood, we can ask ourselves now separated by thousands of years from uh, the event as Christians in this room today, uh, what in the world does this have to do uh, with us? Why would this be important to us as Christians today? And it's important because Jesus referenced the days of Noah in speaking about the fact that there would be the same indifference to sin and to wickedness and to corruption and to violence in, uh, in the, the midst of that kind of wickedness and those same characteristics will mark the world at the time of God's next worldwide judgment upon the earth, a period known in the Bible as the tribulation period, a seven-year period of God's judgment upon the world immediately preceding Jesus' second coming and, uh, and where the wickedness of the world becomes so great that God will be forced to step in and put a stop to it. And all of that will happen immediately after the rapture of the church because that seven-year tribulation period is not just a period of wrath, but it is a time in which God pours his wrath out 
upon the world, his righteous anger and judgment upon the world. And uh, the Bible teaches that as Christians, we are not appointed unto wrath. Uh, We uh, incur the wrath of men, the wrath of the world in this age, but never the wrath of God. And uh, so, uh, because that constitutes his wrath, we have to be removed before that wrath is poured out, before that tribulation period. The passage that Jesus referenced and relate regarding all of this is in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Let me read a section of that to you. He said, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as the, in the, day, as in the uh, days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. He goes on and he declares, then two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and the other left. Uh, Speaking of the rapture, and watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. And therefore you, now speaking to us as Christians, therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not uh, expect. In other words, seeing a repeat in human history of the level, the degree, the, uh, how widespread the evil and the wickedness was in, in Noah's day, and, and a repeat of that kind of wickedness in the world is, is to cause us and to and, and to intend to produce within us as Christians the realization this cannot go on indefinitely. Sooner or later, God will be forced to step in and put a stop to it and, and judge it and then to make sure that we're ready for that rapture when, when it does uh, occur. Now, in the midst of this absolute sea of, uh, of wickedness and the sea of, of evil, God, when he looked at the entire world, he found a bright spot, and it wasn't easy for him to do that. There were only eight uh, on the earth at that time. But he saw a man who was living his life in this incredibly wicked context, but he was living his life as, a, as an absolute contrast to everything that was going on uh, around him. And you notice those first two words there uh, of verse 8, and they're significant, but Noah. And you notice that as he, as he talks about the judgment that's going to come into the world as we looked at it last week, and then you'd come to uh, verse 8, you would think that verse 8 might begin with the words, but the ark... Uh, because, and we, because we think that's the next significant player in this entire scene, but he doesn't. He says, but Noah. And I think that, uh, again, our first tendency can be to look at the text, even as we've read it here this morning, and to think that it's supremely about the ark, but it isn't. Uh, this section of Scripture has, is entirely to do uh, with Noah, uh, who had, was a, been with Noah rather than about the ark. And because there wouldn't have been an ark if there hadn't been a Noah. 
And, and in Noah we're given a portrait of the quality of Christian life, the quality of a spiritual life that will be required uh, in order to stand in, uh, in the last days, uh, to be able to stand in the midst of the wickedness of the age uh, preceding the rapture of the church. I once heard uh, Noah described as an example of how to stay afloat in a world that's sinking. Uh, maybe clever by, uh, too clever by half, but it really is very, very good. Uh, and that's exactly what we can learn from Noah. This morning, I want us just to briefly take a look at six characteristics of Noah's life that are revealed to us here in this passage so that we would not just learn them concerning Noah, but so that, um, and it's a beautiful work of the Holy Spirit, so that we can inventory our own Christian life uh, between us and God uh, against what we see in Noah and what Noah's life is intended to teach, uh, uh, not to some uh, anonymous uh, group in the world, but teach each and every one of us about the characteristics that we will need to have in our lives as Christians as we see uh, the end of the age uh, coming. And so to be able to look at these six things and to be able to declare about them, check, that's in place, uh, uh, it, it concerning our own lives or uh, to be made aware of something if we're not able to say, check, you know, that's present and a characteristic of, of my life so that we can make an immediate change in our lives uh, this morning and, uh, and so that we can be confident that as the Lord looks at the wickedness of the world around us, we want him to be able to look at our lives and to be able to say, individually in the midst of it, but Damien, uh, or but Bob, or but Linda, or whatever your name is. And it's important for God to see in our lives as Christians a stark contrast is intended, a stark contrast to our lives being lived in the midst of the, the world that we live in presently. You notice in verse 8 that we're told, first of all, Noah found grace in the eyes uh, of God. So here you have, you have hundreds of millions of people, if not billions of people, on, on the face of the earth. They're all engaged in wickedness, and, uh, and God spotted Noah. And he spotted Noah simply because Noah refused to engage in, in that wickedness. He noticed him. And sometimes it's very, very easy, especially if you're living as a... A, a righteous life or trying to live a, 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 a godly, obedient life in the midst of wickedness, whether it's an apartment complex or a city or a nation or a family or wherever it might be. And it can, you can, we can almost feel as if uh, we're not noticed, as if our life doesn't, isn't making any difference at all. And, uh, but God notices, and the Bible famously says, 2 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the entire earth to show himself strong on behalf of uh, those whose heart is loyal toward him. And God is going to save Noah and his family because they were in the same spiritual condition that he was in. 
And, uh, and it reminds us again that God's judgment, it isn't arbitrary. His judgment is not indiscriminate. He is going to judge an entire earth, but only after uh, protecting uh, as small a minority as eight people in the population of the earth uh, when, when he did so. And it, and it speaks to the fact of how God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He looks, he, he notices, he spots anyone that is uh, turned toward him. It also r- reminds us, uh, again, that, that God, he, he, he notices uh, our lives, even if no one else uh, does notice. We see uh, second in verse 9, Noah was a just man. In other words, he did what was right. He did what was just in the eyes of God. His decision-making was based upon what was right and just in the eyes of God. His actions and how he lived were characterized by uh, God's definition of, of right and, and what is, is just. And so in his business dealings, whatever they might have been, uh, in his family, in his connections with the world, uh, as a husband, uh, as a father, and right on down the line to all of the hats that he uh, wore in life, uh, God looked at him and said, this is a just man. This is a man whose life is, is dominated by, and he has chosen to live in, in the light of my definitions of what is just and what what is, is right. And so we, we look at the, this and we say, can I check that uh, on the, the, the box of my life related to uh, putting it up against Noah? We see third that in verse 9 that he was perfect in his generations. In other words, he was uh, blameless. It doesn't mean that he was sinless. Uh, it, it, it was just he, he lived his life in, in uh, such obedience to God that nobody could look at his life and see uh, deliberate, protracted, willful sin within his life. Nobody could bring an accusation of, of wrongdoing concerning, uh, concerning his life. And that's what's being spoken of related uh, to blameless. I think it's very important to have that encourage our spirit here this morning that is a child of God and uh, that we can walk with God, we can obey God, even if no one else among the seven and a half billion people that populate the earth right now, uh, we can walk with God even if nobody else does. Now, we're blessed. If California has a Bible belt, uh, the Central Valley is it. And uh, so, uh, but look at what, look at what worshiping the Lord has meant to us, doing that together this morning. Uh, Look what it it means to us and all the different kind of gatherings that happen related to the church through the week in a home fellowship or men and women's Bible study and all the different, different gatherings. And what fellowship with one another means to us is an encouragement to our faith when we're in the middle of trials, in the middle of difficulty, and it's invaluable to us. And, uh, and put yourself in Noah's place where here you've got eight people and they're all in your family. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and what they, what, what we have and they didn't have and they continued to walk with God, 
even in the midst of that level of unbelief, that level of complete disregard uh, for God. And of course, all of that is a, it, 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 uh, the ability to do that, to walk with God in that kind of a context, uh, of course, is a work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Paul wrote of this, this power of the Holy Spirit and uh, second, in uh, Philippians, rather, chapter 2. And he said, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, uh, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will to do and, uh, and uh, uh, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so he, God gives us the desire to obey God's commandments, and then he gives us the power to do it. Now, if you're around here any length of time, you say, you know, that guy, he quotes that a lot. And uh, that passage, and yet, you know why I do? Because it's important for us to be reminded of the fact that God didn't just give us a book, the Bible, filled with commandments and filled with instruction and then leave us on our own to roll up our sleeves and endeavor to try and keep all of these commandments in this, uh, this book in, uh, in our own uh, strength and power. But what he does is when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit himself comes into our lives and produces a desire to live the life that's described in the Bible. We feel it, don't we? One day it wasn't present in us, and the next day it was present in us when we were born again. And not only the desire to, what if he provided the desire but no power? What if you provided power but no desire? This is a God who thinks of everything. He provided the, the, the will to do and then the power to do of, of God's good uh, pleasure. And uh, in other words, this righteous life, a blameless life is not something that we should ever as Christians kind of put in this, you know, theoretical realm. Yes, it's in the Bible because you would expect God to say things like that, but he certainly can't take all of these commandments seriously. And uh, so we don't have to really take them uh, seriously uh, a- a- at all. And it's, it, it's easy for people to put it in the theoretical category or the impossible kind of category or to say it, it, that the word of God, the commands of God, the demands of God, uh, it is sufficient for me uh, to uh, know them and have th- them influence me to that level, but, but never to think that that I would need to obey them. In terms of the power that the Holy Spirit gives us to do this, Peter, uh, he speaks strongly on it as well. And uh, important passage to know as a Christian, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He said, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then here it is. As his divine power has given to us all things, that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. In other words, when we become a Christian, we now, by the Holy Spirit within our life, he provides us all that is necessary in order to, uh, in terms of the things that pertain to life and to godliness. And it's important for us to hear that 
when we live in the midst of the kind of wickedness that we live in our state and in our country and in this world, that God has given us the power of His Holy Spirit to live the kind of life that we see uh, in Noah. So we ask ourselves, we check that, that, that box uh, off. And if we have uh, live our lives in, in any kind of a deliberate rebellion to God's commandments, and whether in a large portion within our lives or small portions of our lives, uh, Noah teaches us that we're just absolutely setting ourselves up to be completely swallowed up by the wickedness of, of the end of the age. You notice fourth uh, that Noah walked with God there in verse 9 as well. So clearly Noah is, is uh, saved. So often I, uh, most of what I, you know, in studying the passage looked at it talks about uh, Noah being uh, a, a, a just man, Noah being a, you know, perfect in all of his generations and trying to bring it back to trying to do this whole kind of reform thing and uh, work, uh, you know, uh, that this was all because he was saved on this and that and, and, and uh, doing cartwheels related to it uh, in order to, to make sure that, uh, well, I'm, no need to get into all of it, uh, but, but the fact is that, that he was saved and uh, his righteousness and his justness and his blamelessness came out of the fact that, that he was already saved here. And I think that Noah uh, probably uh, saved based upon, certainly on a faith in Jesus Christ's coming, and I think based upon a faith in God's promise there, as we've seen in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God, his promise that he would send a savior into the world, of the seed of a woman, she would be virgin born, and that this uh, savior that would be born in the world would ultimately crush uh, Satan's authority, save mankind from the consequences of the fall, that Satan played such an instrumental part uh, in that, and that that was the revelation. I mean, he's, he's operating under a lot less revelation than you and I operate under, but on the basis of, of that revelation alone, perhaps, he looks and he says, that's what I, I believe about God. And I, I, I believe in that Savior that he is going to send and his salvation born uh, out of that. And, and, and it, it's important to realize that, you know, don't believe that Noah was so far removed from the time of Adam and Eve and the fall in, in, in the garden, so far, far removed from the promise that God uh, made there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, that that this would have been something that it would have been, uh, you know, passed down uh, through so many generations that it would have become completely obscure to him. Because of the longevity of man at the time, Noah was born only about 126 years uh, after Adam died. In other words, everyone on earth knew all about uh, the creation of Adam and Eve. They knew about the fall of Adam and Eve, and they knew it from Adam and Eve. I mean, they're the eyewitnesses of, of the fact or uh, from the generation that immediately followed Adam and Eve and were still living. So this wasn't something that was like this was getting passed down, you know, way down generation after generation. 
When, when God talks about the fact that Noah walked with God, a walk with God speaks to the fact that Noah lived in a present tense personal relationship and fellowship with God. And I think that of all of the characteristics of Noah that are listed for us here, that's, that, this is the most important one. And the reason it's the most important one is that all of the other characteristics flowed out of this. They all flowed out of his walk with God, his relationship uh, with God. To walk with someone is to engage in a shared experience with another person. And it certainly includes the fact that whoever you walk with just by virtue of walking with them it means that you're headed in the same direction, you're headed toward the same uh, destination. That's what's required, or we wouldn't be uh, walking with one another. But it also speaks of some kind of a relationship with the person that you're walking with. And to walk with someone over some kind of a long distance is that uh, by virtue of walking with them, it's going to mean that a relationship will develop. It means that that relationship will deepen and become more significant uh, the longer that we walk together. It's as the old hymn puts it concerning God, he walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. Uh, It is interesting that the hymn doesn't say, and he talks to me uh, and he uh, walks with me. Uh, It says he talks with me. There's the recognition of the conversation that is going on, uh, the relationship that's being developed within a a walk with God. There's an exchange happening. And this is what Noah had with God. And he chose to walk in the same direction that God was walking in. God's going in this direction on planet Earth at that time in history and hundreds of millions and and perhaps billions of people walking in exactly the opposite direction. And he says, I'm going to walk with God. I'm going to walk with him and and go in the direction that that he is, is going in. And so he chose to walk in the same direction God was walking in and uh, so to speak, in, in this world by obeying God's commandments. And, that, and, and all of that is the, the justness and the blamelessness that we have talked about. But he also enjoyed, in this walk with God, he enjoyed this close, ongoing communion and fellowship with God. Again, he walked with God and he talked with God along life's narrow way. Now, let me say this carefully, but... Um, Let me say it uh, nevertheless. I don't think that any Christian who does not spend uh, daily time or consistent time in uh, prayer to God and in reading his word, uh, which is the primary means of his revelation of his heart uh, to us, the primary means by which he speaks to us, has a walk with God. Uh, We can be saved. Uh, We can be on our way to heaven. We can be engaged in Christian service. We can believe that everything in the Bible is true. We can be absolutely intolerant uh, of, of evil 
and, and, uh, and false doctrine and, and not be engaged in a present tense love relationship, not be engaged in a walk with God. You say, how in the world can you say something like that? Well, I say it because Jesus said exactly that to the church of Ephesus in the very first of his seven letters that he wrote to that church in Ephesus. Let me, let me read uh, it to you in Revelation chap, uh, chapter 2. Uh, he said, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. You look and say, now what's the name of that church? I think I'll go there next Sunday. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a church that any pastor would want a candidate for based upon that that kind of a description, but Jesus uh, didn't stop there. He said, nevertheless, I mean, you put all of these things, these great things on one side of the scale, and he said, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love, and that is the love that we, f- that we feel, felt, hopefully not just felt when we first became a Christian, but it is that love relationship, the newness, the, the currentness, the, the vitality of that relationship that so often marks the early part of our Christian life, but we can move away from. He said, therefore, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You say, that's obscure language. What in the world is he saying? I mean, it, it, obviously, it's, uh, he's saying something about removing his lampstand. It's significant there, but what does it represent? He, earlier, in the, just a couple of verses before when, that I just read, he spoke about the fact that he moved am, among the lampstands. In other words, God is saying that you're all, you've turned into a machine. You, you have reduced me to a formula, and you have done it to such a degree that now you have a relationship with a formula. You have a relationship with some kind of an understanding of me, you have, but, you, but the relationship with me got lost somewhere along the line. And he said, if you don't get that thing turned around, uh, speaking to them as a church, he said, um, I'll remove the lampstand. In other words, I will remove the fullness of my presence upon you because I will not bless what you have become even though the world would look at the church of Ephesus and even Christians and say that is exactly what a church needs to be. And yet Jesus said, because you've lost sight of the fact that I didn't save you because I needed laborers or I didn't save you just to save you. I saved you for a personal relationship. And yet you've turned it into a machine. You've turned it into a formula. 
and I am not going to grace that with my presence so this becomes what Christianity becomes known for and, and, uh, and so what you have become then spreads. And any church, and I'll tell you, any Christian and certainly any leader and any pastor of a church knows that's the ultimate threat for, for God to say, bye. Because I, I don't know about any other church, I know that if the Lord lifted the presence of his Holy Spirit off of Calvary Chapel Modesto, we couldn't even bluff for two weeks. We just would cry, uncle because we depend so much upon uh, the presence of God in, in what, uh, what we do. We, we depend entirely uh, upon that. And then Jesus went on and he said, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then he said back to us this morning, for he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat, from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise uh, of God. And it, and it is not only the Christian life uh, that, that it, 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 rather, it is only the Christian life that is also a walk with God that will be able to stand in the days that are described in as, as characteristic uh, of the world in the last days because only that kind of person will have a relationship with God that is more valuable to them than uh, any of the sins or the temptations that the world will offer in the days of Noah and in the last days. Concerning temptation and the offer of, uh, 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 and we live in a world that is just nonstop temptation because uh, the technology has brought it uh, into uh, not only everyone's home, but into uh, the phone that is in everybody's purse or in everybody's back pocket. And, 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 and so the, the temptation all, the, all around us, someone has said about temptation, and, and victory over it, it takes a passion to conquer a passion. And it's true. The ultimate key to standing in the midst of sin and temptation and wickedness is not to hate sin more, but it is to love God more. And it is to come to the place uh, in my life where my relationship with him and the intimacy and the currentness of that relationship becomes the most important thing to me and more important than anything in the world that the Lord could offer to me. And where the relationship becomes so intimate, it becomes so current, it becomes so important to us that we realize that we couldn't make it a day without that relationship. And the key for every Christian who hopes to stand in the wickedness of the last days, hopes to not be swept away by just the sheer magnitude of evil and wickedness, is to get one of those, to get what Noah had. And that is a walk with God 
and to get a relationship with God that is so important to us that we would rather die than lose that intimacy and that relationship with God. And, and because the relationship has become so valuable to us that there is nothing the world could offer to us uh, that, that would, uh, would in any way turn our head. And I think it's always good to be reminded as Christians that God saved us supremely for a relationship. That's what this thing is all about. You notice, uh, number five, that Noah was obedient in all things, verse 22. I want to just read verse 22. Uh, Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he uh, did. You notice that word did is repeated twice. You might even circle it if you circle in your Bible. Uh, The word all is there, so we know how much didding he was doing. Uh, it was all, uh, and that, that word is represented in the verse as well. And what exactly did he do with uh, complete uh, obedience? Well, he was obedient in his relationship with the Lord. He was obedient in, uh, in being just. He was obedient in being a blameless man in his uh, generation. But his obedience is also spoken to us about the fact that uh, he was obedient in the fact that he built the ark that God commanded him to build uh, as it's described there in verses 13 through 21. Now, that's some kind of obedience. I mean, you, when, you, when you realize that here he is, he obeys God, uh, not when it's marginally difficult to obey God or it's marginally sacrificial to obey God. He obeys God when, it is, when God calls him to do something that is unimaginably hard uh, to, to do, when it, it involves incredible uh, sacrifice to do so. And the building of the ark, it wasn't just the sweat, it wasn't just the hard labor, it wasn't just the aching joints and the, and the aching muscles at the end of, of each day and the 120 years it was required in order to, uh, to build the ark. I don't think any of that was any kind of uh, ultimate sacrifice really uh, compared to uh, the sacrifice of his reputation. Uh, no man... Certainly no mature man uh, uh, loves to have their reputation uh, destroyed. No man likes to be mocked or likes to be scorned before the whole world. And yet here he is, he sacrifices his reputation before the entire world. All of the scorning, all of the mocking that was going on, not among a marginal handful over here that you can kind of deal with because everybody else likes you in the rest of your life or the other pockets of your life. It's eight people against hundreds of millions. And they all think the same thing of you. They think you're a nutcase for believing in God. They think you're crazy for obeying God in, in, in all of this. And here he faces all of this mocking and scorning from human beings. And one of the biggest lies that was ever put to rhyme, as sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And you just think about the sheer 
amount of rejection he faced in obeying God, in building an ark 450 feet long. That's, that's the length of one and a half football ball fields, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Uh, those that study the, all of this kind of thing, it had a capacity of approximately 1.4 million cubic feet. I mean, it had the, the, uh, the, the, the capacity in terms of volume of 522 standard uh, livestock uh, railroad cars. And the ark was being built for the preservation of his family, also for the animal kingdom, complete with being commanded to bring in all of the necessary food that would be required to survive the flood and the aftermath of the flood for a period of of about a year. And here he is, he's building this ark on absolute dry land, this gigantic boat on dry land. He is miles and miles away from any body of water on on the face of the earth. And he's doing it in preparation for the destruction of the world by flood. When apparently there had never been a flood before. Nobody knew what a flood was. And not only did nobody know what a flood was, nobody even knew what rain was. It had never rained before. Those first drops began to fall from the sky at the time of the flood. And because the, the earth apparently, at that time, the atmospheric conditions, we, as we talked about last time, there was a canopy on the earth and the earth was, uh, was watered by a mist. There was this uniform, apparently, this uniform kind of climate that filled the earth. That's why you find dinosaurs on the North Pole and the South Pole. You don't. Other people find them. And, uh, and there they are uh, located in places that are completely frozen now and uh, and they don't die skin and bones. Uh, the, the grass and, and, and the vegetation is still in their mouth. It is still in their belly when they find them. Is an indication that something came instantly, something came powerfully upon the entire earth and that what the world was pre-flood and the world is post-flood too entirely. Uh, different, uh, different things. And here's this preparation being made, and I'll tell you, Noah's obedience, Eric, it makes me ashamed when I'm tempted to, to cave under immeasurably less uh, pressure. And given what we know now, to ask ourselves under, as we look at Noah here, how important was it that Noah obeyed God completely in his life, and in the building of the ark. It's very important. What if he he didn't build the ark? What if if he always intended to, but just never quite got around uh, to it? What if he only built half of an ark, or two-thirds of an ark? What if he built the ark and the animals all got on, but he failed to gather the food supplies? What if he built the ark and then he failed to board it himself? So we see, we see the importance of that repetition, did, did, the importance of all related to obedience. And so we see that 
total obedience was necessary for uh, and is necessary for any purpose of God to come together in just the way that, not that we think is adequate, but that he knows is just the way it needs to come together uh, from his vantage point, whether in Noah's life and in his calling or in our lives and, and, and our calling as well. I think Martin Luther is famous for a lot of quotes, but famous for a quote, and, and I think behind it, just the understanding of the power and the far-reaching impact of our obedience and, and disobedience as Christians, and of, of, like Noah, the importance of our faithfulness to what God has called us to in a relationship with Him, but then also in, in, in our Christian service. When Martin Luther declared, I would rather obey than work miracles. It's quite a statement. I would rather obey than work miracles. And he's not diminishing miracles. God, give us all the miracles you want to do, Lord. We're open to that. But I think that uh, here in his statement here is the elevation in our minds of the incredible power and influence that is exerted in the world just by virtue of our obedience. And to realize that every act of obedience on our part as Christians is a living thing. It, it, it is like, it's like the pebble that's thrown into the pond and the ripples go out. When, when we do anything we do in obedience to God's word, it, it, it isn't contained to that little place that that pebble goes into the water. There, is, there are ripple effects and God makes sure of it in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm, he makes sure of it to every act of obedience that we do as Christians. Uh, one of my favorite sayings related to this is that the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that becomes visible through the obedience of God's people. Every time we obey God, and the darker the environment, the more it is true. But every time we obey God, it is a manifestation of the existence of the kingdom of God in the midst of the situation that we find ourselves in. That's how living, that's how dynamic, that is how powerful obedience on our part, obedience towards God is in, in our lives and in the world in, in which we live. There's an old saying and that goes like this, partial obedience is disobedience. And that's important to hear at least once in our Christian lives so that God can bring it to our remembrance as we're fashioning a partial uh, obedience uh, Christianity. Uh, and it never does me any harm. In fact, as it came to my mind as I was preparing the sermon, never does me any harm to be reminded of that. Damien, partial obedience is disobedience. And you know why I need to be reminded of that? Because I live with a knucklehead. I'm not talking about Karen. I'm, I'm talking about my old Adam nature inside of me. I deal with that guy every day the same way you deal with a knucklehead in you. 
And he's always trying to pull me into a, convince me that a a Christian life of partial obedience is actually, uh, a, a partial, is actually true obedience. Because he always wants to take me from comparing my Christian life to the word of God, to comparing my Christian life to how maybe other Christians are living at large within the culture, within, within the world. And so the, the importance of that, and uh, because we all have some part of us that wants to settle into some partial obedience as a relationship with the Lord. And so we ask whether we can check that on the box, and then finally we see in, in, uh, that Noah was a man of faith. And for that, we go into the New Testament. Let me read it to you, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And so what was at the core of his 120 years of of obedience in Noah's life? The first thing that was there was a healthy fear of God. I love God. And I know that he loves me, but I also fear God. And just as it did something good in Noah's life, it does something very, very good in my life as well. I would fear ever standing before God Almighty one day having rejected his son and the offer of salvation that has been made to mankind through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I fear standing before him one day and having frittered away my life on anything and everything except what he has called me to do And then one day, looking into Jesus' eyes and failing to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The second characteristic of Noah that was important to understand Noah was his faith. And expressing his faith that God was going to destroy the world in a flood, as God had said, he built an ark. And in doing so, Noah announced the condemnation of the world to destruction, that it was coming, and and he announced that both in the building of the ark and his preaching as well. And as a result of, of building the ark, he saved his family. And thus, by virtue of his life being cited in this hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, it's intended to challenge us from the pages of the Old Testament to us in, in the New Covenant as Christians. And as to whether, as Christians, we really believe that judgment is going to come upon the earth, as God said, do we really believe that? that there's a real heaven and there's a real hell on the other side of this life. That the life that we live now is important to God and that what he has called us to be and to do between now and that judgment is vitally important to him. 
And then to ask ourselves, what dramatic effect have those truths had upon the quality of my uh, Christian life and my Christian service? As someone has said, it is one thing to believe in God. It is quite another to believe God. And there's a big gap between those two things. It is one thing to believe in God. It is quite another thing to believe God. And it's absolutely true. And to really believe God will translate into a life that is consistent with uh, those beliefs. And I suppose that the quality and the obedience of each of our Christian lives, that is the ultimate revealer of what we really believe from the Word of God, despite what we say. I'll give James the final word on all of this. It's only appropriate. James said in James chapter 2, verse 20, he said, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And so in Noah, we're given this beautiful, necessary portrait of the quality of Christian life that will be required in order to stand in the midst of the wickedness that will mark the world at the end of the age as God prepares to pour his judgment out upon the entire world one more time during the tribulation period. And I suppose that for some Christians, a Bible study like this might seem a little bit melodramatic or a little bit too demanding or a little unnecessary to speak about these things with this kind of sobriety and in some cases this kind of pointedness. And to that I say, we'll see. We'll see. And I'm convinced that it is a wise Christian who will put his or her Christian lives up against these six characteristics of Noah and then rectify any glaring deficiencies that they might expose in any of us. And I suspect that it's God alone who knows what will, what will be required to stand in the wickedness of the last days. And I think that in his grace, he has revealed that to us in the life of Noah, among other places. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, it is more important for you to trust in Jesus and begin a relationship with God uh, on the basis of faith in him than I could ever put into words. Because at the end of this life, as we move into eternity, something even far worse than a flood awaits the person that rejects Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that is found only in him. And that is an eternal separation and judgment from God in an eternal lake of fire that is called hell. It is the only place that God will not rule over and reign over in eternity. And you don't want to find yourself there. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you this morning to put your faith in Christ for your salvation this morning. If you need prayer for anything this morning about what we've talked about today or something that's going on just in your life, 
independent of this, these same men and women would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, I can't uh, teach this sermon, and I know none of us can hear this sermon without really sensing the weightiness uh, of it. And we pray as we do so often that um, what you have spoken to us through your word and revealed to us here, that it wouldn't be lost in the commotion of the dismissal of this service in uh, a moment or two but that whatever kind of gap exists in our individual lives with you between what we see in Noah and what it is that we have with you, that we would not leave this passage and leave this, this truth, Lord, until that gap is completely closed by your Holy Spirit. And we pray for that continued work of your Holy Spirit upon each of our lives We sense the sobriety of the passage of your voice in all of this. Give us a comparable sobriety about our own personal walk and the importance of it and the impact of it, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sunday nights we go through.